We are honored today to have with us members of the Future of Ethical Societies, several of whom will be addressing us. Um, They're here for their 12th conference uh, this weekend and have been having some very deep discussions, so I've been told. And introducing Fess and our speakers today will be Justin Taft-Morales, a man who needs no introduction to many of us here. He's grown up in the West community, uh, son of uh, Maureen and Hugh Taft-Morales, and delighted to have him back here at the podium. Um, Thank you. Um, I also want to, off the bat, uh, say thank you to Wes for hosting us. Um, You guys have been amazing. Um, uh, So I'm just going to do a brief introduction. Uh, We are FES. For those of you who don't know, FES stands for Future of Ethical Societies. Um, We are an international group of 18 to 35-year-olds within the ethical culture movement. Um, And we have an annual conference on Memorial Day. Um, And this winter we met, uh, a group of us met in Philadelphia to rewrite our bylaws so that, um, to encourage us to uh, be active as an organization outside of our annual conference. Um, In light of that, uh, this year we wanted to use our conference to deconstruct um, what it means to be active, um, what it means to be active humanists, what it means to be young, active, ethical humanists. Um, uh, and so, uh, so yesterday we had some really awesome discussions. We um, talked a little bit about uh, what it means to be uh, spiritual within ethical culture, um, as well as what... Um, humanist anti-racist activism looks like. Um, We had a little workshop with my dad, uh, Hugh Taff-Morales, and he has a platform on humanist anti-racist activism that is on YouTube. Um, So check it out. Um, And then in the afternoon we met with uh, a local activist who's been really involved with the DC Black Lives Matter movement, um, Eugene Perrier, um, and we talked... um, about some of the tools that we have to um, enact change. Um, and we've been trying to use this weekend to kind of think outside of the box because I feel like we have um, a relatively limited um, conception of what it means to, to do good. Um, so my one of my um, biggest uh, experiences with trying to do good um, is by going to El Salvador. Um, and um, infinite gratitude towards my mentors in that, Ross and Susan and um, others who aren't here today. Um, But I feel very strongly that that is only an entry point um, into um, a whole messy entanglement of uh, moral dilemmas and uh, problems that need to be changed. Um, So uh, without further ado, I would like to bring up our first speaker, um, and we will, um, as it says on this, we'll be just deconstructing the ethics of action. Um, So yeah, Dan. Good morning. morning. Um, Hi, I'm Dan. I'm from uh, Long Island, and uh, so I thought we'd kick things off with a little bit of an activity, actually. Um, So in in deconstructing what what it means to do meaningful action, we first had to critique what we may or may not see as outdated models. 
So we spent a lot of time this weekend um, speaking to the nonprofit or not-for-profit, often government-funded um, model of, of going into a community and, and helping it. Um, so there are a number of issues with this. Uh, one of them is just how effective that actually is as far as strengthening community, which our next speaker, Doug, will speak to. Um, but I wanted to talk about an economic concept called uh, decreasing marginal returns. Um, and specifically uh, speak to my experiences living in New Orleans. Um, and in New Orleans, there is a wild, like, hyper-saturation of, of nonprofits to the point where people are just stepping on each other's toes. People are starving the local economy out of money because local businesses don't have any way to make money because other people are undercutting them with government funding. And nothing's getting done. So, um, all right, let me set this up. Um, so I'd like to ask a volunteer, so anyone could raise their hand. Oh, sure, come on. We'll, we'll be needing a bunch of volunteers. So what you're going to do is going, you're going to pick up one gummy worm and move it to the other basket. And uh, now you're going to do it again. You're going to move all of them to one and then move it again. And now at the same time, I'd like to call up another volunteer. If someone could raise their hand. Come on up. You're going to do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And once one of them is totally full, you can switch over to the next one. Um, another volunteer, please. Come on up. Um, so you're going to pick up two and walk very slowly with them. <laughs> very, very slowly. And as you can see, they're starting to kind of like have to walk around each other and they're getting a little bit confused. Um, I would be too. Um, and another volunteer, please. So you start on the next one. We have another volunteer. Anyone? Coming up? You know what? Let's just, anyone who wants to come up and try and help, please. Like, let's, the, the more people we get, I think the more, because <laughs> that's how it works. You know, more people helping is, is like more helping hands. And um, if, <laughs> if we actually used a timer and we started observing this and how long it takes to move them all from one basket to the next, um, we would have up to about three or four people. We would have a, a return on investment. We would get more speed. But actually, as you get more and more people, one more person only adds like a fraction of a second, a fraction of a second, until eventually it will hurt because everyone is just stepping on each other's toes. Um, and now, there is, it's not even... <laughs> It's not even organized anymore. <laughs> Both baskets are just getting filled, and it's rough. Um, so that's decreasing marginal returns, and that is what happens when too many people try and help. All right. Hi, I'm uh, Doug. For uh, those who don't know me, I've been involved in WES uh, on and off for a while now. 
Uh, this is my first time uh, getting to know FES, and I've got to say this is an awesome group. They've been uh, very welcoming, um, full of passion, and uh, very inspiring to me already. Uh, so I am uh, going to tell you about my experience as a uh, caseworker for at-risk youth, uh, which I did uh, for about two years in uh, Baltimore City, uh, Baltimore County, and actually uh, up here in Montgomery County. Uh, First year, I was a uh, community service learning fellow uh, as a AmeriCorps-affiliated uh, job. Um, basically, uh, our site would consist of uh, three uh, caseworkers and a manager. Uh, we would have a uh, pool or a client uh, panel of uh, 30 at-risk youth, all referred to us by the court system. And our goal was to provide intensive community-based supervision of those youth. Uh, basically, we'd uh, work 40 hours a week um, visiting them in school, talking to teachers, going to court, uh, talking to uh, probation officers. And then someone on our team would then uh, spend the night uh, until 11 p.m. driving around, and we'd attempt to visit every youth at their home. Uh, talk to their family, talk to the youth, see how their day went, um, and what we can do to support. Uh, every weekend, we'd attempt to engage some of the youth in uh, culturally enriching activities or volunteer work. Um, for the caseworkers, it was a 55-hour-a-week commitment or more. Um, very intense, uh, but uh, personally, I got a whole lot out of it. Um, you know, it challenged uh, my perspective on the world. Uh, helped me grow as a person, helped me get uh, professional skills uh, that are uh, paying off now. And I, of course, met a lot of great people. Um, you know, images and situations were, uh, that I encountered, uh, you know, good and bad, are going to stick with me forever from those two years. Uh, of course, I met a lot of youth with a lot of potential. Um, you know, I think uh, I helped some of them find a better path. As it relates to the platform here, um, did I do any good? Did the choice program do any good? Uh, I think net, yes, we did. Um, but uh, the realities of uh, institutional nonprofits start to get in the way of the mission. And uh, we definitely felt that. Uh, you know, the mission of the choice program was to empower youth and families, right? The thing about empowerment is it's not quantifiable. What is quantifiable is things like home visits and uh, recidivism rates and all of that. So what we were actually uh, sort of judged on and, and what paid the bills, how we justified the funding, we were all funded by the state of Maryland, uh, was hitting certain numbers. And then actually doing the job you know, that, that we brought all these uh, very uh, passionate uh, folks, mostly right out of college, to do we'd have to sort of fit in in, in hitting our numbers. Uh, and I was working there right during the uh, financial crisis. Um, so funding all of a sudden got really tight. And, uh, you know, to, to maintain our funding, my organization had to promise uh, juvenile services more and more and more. So instead of just writing monthly reports, we would write weekly reports Instead of just doing telephone curfew checks, we would do, uh, attempt to do in-person curfew checks every night. And uh, I was a manager in Montgomery County at this point, and uh, you know, what I was asking my team to do was sort of uh, more and more ridiculous. 
Uh, but I have full sympathy uh, because uh, about six months after I left, uh, the funding of the Choice Program was slashed right in half, and every office outside of Baltimore City was shut down. So where I worked on uh, East Deer Park Road in Gaithersburg, that site had been there 15 years, uh, no more. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting question uh, as to what we were actually doing and uh, if it paid off. Like I said, it, it did. Uh, you know, I think we made a net positive result, but uh, it was a real lesson to me in the limitations of relying on existing institutions to address social problems. All right. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Kai, and I'm coming from the New York Society. Um, I'm just a new member. Um, I, the, the topic of our platform today uh, about doing more harm, no harm or doing more good, um, is uh, in part uh, inspired by a lot of our common experiences doing sort of volunteerism and seeing like the power dynamics that are a result of that and seeing how complicated it actually is to do good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a movement that I've been involved with for about a decade now. Um, and I started as well as like a very idealistic student in college, um, really interested in anti-trafficking, interested in preventing harm. And then as I learned more about the movement and got more engaged in other parts of immigrant rights, which was actually my foundation because my mom was a garment worker and domestic worker, so I grew up with the language of labor rights um, and kind of went, now I'm a labor organizer, so I followed that direction. And I saw better ways of addressing the issues of anti-trafficking from a migrant labor um, perspective, and also the harms of anti-trafficking in terms of promoting immigration control and law enforcement as the main strategies for preventing harm rather than community empowerment. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of a, that, that journey and about the significance, um, the historical significance of, of, of the current movement. Um, the modern anti-trafficking movement surged in the United States in the early 2000s after the passing of the TVPA, the Trafficking Victims of trafficking after 2000, um, particularly during the Bush administration, during a time when the U.S. got involved simultaneously in multiple conflicts, including the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was passed alongside the Patriot Act and other anti-terrorist legislation. Funding for anti-trafficking went towards strengthening law enforcement and immigration border controls. And an unlikely coalition of Christian religious fundamentalists and second-wave feminists united in support of human trafficking legislation and against prostitution. While the Clinton administration, uh, the one before who had begun the conversation on trafficking, uh, which at that time was led more by Canadian and UK advocates, um, strongly considered forced labor among the the various issues of human trafficking. Um, this was very much switched to just sex trafficking under the Bush administration, um, which was the Clinton administration was not explicitly anti-prostitution, and the Bush administration turned a focus specifically towards that alongside other forms of uh, sexuality control, reproductive justice control acts, such as PEPFAR, and its abstinence-only um, approach to addressing HIV-AIDS. So... Um, the kinds of controls that were that were passed in a rush under the moral agenda of anti-trafficking that seemed incontrovertible because it's so moral, so easy to defend, actually log-rolled a series of bills that were rather harmful in terms of tightening immigration control, um, using economic sanctions to uh, address different like relations that the state has an agenda towards through the TIP reports that look at different countries and their 
um, in their approach to human trafficking. And so the well-intentioned work of various feminist and Christian groups to prevent sexual violence was actually appropriated um, as a means to quickly and incontrovertibly uh, support U.S. neo-imperialist agendas abroad. Um, Today, the human trafficking movement is composed largely of a big mixture of really well-funded but middle-class um, mostly middle class, but largely like college student awareness campaigns where very little of the money actually reaches services to people who have faced violence or exploitation in the sex trades. Um, and much of the money actually goes towards just maintaining the whole system of more administrative costs, keeping these things up, doing awareness work, doing advocacy work, but it's not really clear. Like the bulk of the money is just disappearing into itself. Um, and actually, its anti-prostitution stance actually pushes people in the sex trades further underground and creates the conditions of informal black markets where business transactions must be enforced by extra-legal means, such as gangs or pimps, because sex workers cannot trust the police to protect them in instances of violence or robbery. And these are the conditions that make human trafficking possible and make it such a difficult and intractable problem in the first place and make people hard to find and hard to help, right? So these campaigns, um, which are actually taking funding and attention away from the grassroots community groups that have been working on these issues for decades, and away from sex worker organizing who have been fighting for improving laws in countries like Thailand and Cambodia for decades and actually succeeding, um, it's brought a lot of attention away from the methods that are working, which are labor methods. How do you like make sure that certain you know people are paid and, and at a certain rate, and that people have different like safe working conditions and health codes? These are labor issues that address the exploitations. Along with you can use the laws that already exist around you know kidnapping. Like a lot of these things are already in the basic laws. Um, so enforcing those and creating more labor rights and allowing people to come out from the dark um, has been successful. And the anti trafficking movement actually has taken a lot of funding and attention away from the methods from the community that have been working and that need actually more support. Um, so I just want to do a very quick, um, this is because I think it's, this is actually the second time in history that this has happened. Um, and in the progressive era of 1910 to 1920, this happened again another time. This was during the White Slavery Act when women's suffrage groups were saying that, look, there's so much prostitution in Chinatown, it's actually causing, you know, you know, white slavery, a lot of innocent, pure girls from being misled. And so their strategy towards it was one of uh, actually, like, they decided that it would be good for the suffrage movement if we promoted this cause because if women were running municipal government, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. And so it was used as a platform to pr promote women's rights. Um, in the end, what you see are two forms of legislation. One was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1862, which was the first immigration law in the United States that targeted a specific ethnic group and kept the Chinese out of the country for almost 100 years. Um, that was preceded right before by the Page Act, which uh, specifically said that Chinese women would not be allowed into the country because most of them are prostitutes. So <laughs> this is the beginning of immigration legislation in the country, and it was started by this uh, like, alignment with some really good movements, the White Suffrage Act and this White Slavery Act. I mean, the Women's Suffrage <laughs> Movement and the White Slavery Act. Um, the second thing that was created was the FBI, was created by the Mann Act in 1910. It was also during the White Slavery uh, Movement, and it was actually the first interstate um, form of surveillance and like criminal control. So what you see is a creation, actually, of like immigration law and criminal laws um, during this era. And these are the continual things that keep, to, 
keep being strengthened with new anti-trafficking legislation. So the latest one that passed was the JVTA of 2015, which went through the House of Representatives last week. And it was log rolled in with that legislation is a lot of uh, new funding for a cyber criminal unit in the ICE, in um, Immigration and uh, and Customs Enforcement, in alignment with the Department of Defense. And what it does is it creates a cyber crimes unit to monitor immigrant activity in search of human trafficking. But what you can see as across the UK, especially in the UK and across Europe, is a lot of these things that have a moral agenda of surveilling either the use of porn, child pornography, or human trafficking are actually the same technologies that are used to survey all the citizens. So at the same time as the ban on porn was passed in the UK that same year, we found millions of citizens being surveyed in their homes with the webcams and like the conversations are recorded by the by the UK government, like being directly involved in it. So what you see is the marginalization of a group of people through a moral agenda actually spreading across the entire citizenry, right? So we need to be aware of how these actions, sometimes under such a beautiful platform and such a, like, you know, very difficult to (laughs) controvert, incontrovertible kind of moral agenda can actually have really harmful effects. So... um, I guess in closing, I wanted to say that we we really need to move away in our policy analysis from this theory of purity in our ethical action and move towards better representations of human behavior um, that consider like the real-world implications of, of our actions. Our models of social prof- policy often fail to take into account the unintended consequences and externalities in the econ language of our laws and how they are enforced, the irrationality of human behavior, and the complexity when multiple organizations with different power dynamics overlap and struggle with competing agendas and strategies. So, thank you. <laughs> Wow, that was such an amazing talk to follow. <laughs> Never going to beat that. Um, I'm, can you hear me all right? I'm Nicola. I'm from England, obviously. And I'm the president of IHEU, which is the International Humanist and Ethical Youth Organization. Basically, we represent humanists aged 18 to 35 worldwide. And we have a huge working group in Africa, massive one in Europe, really strong one in Asia, but until now we've had no contact with America, so this is why I'm here, and Xavier's running. (laughs) And Xavier's our new chair for America, and we're hoping to build a strong working group. And that's a bit about me. Um, Randomly, I'm a citizen of America, which... Sounds a bit hard to believe (laughs) with my accent. And I'm going to quickly talk about humanism because I've been involved in grassroots humanism from the start of university. And from probably when I was about 12, I've always been campaigning on different issues. Um, So for me, when I finished university, it was never going to be the end of campaigning for me. But unfortunately, most people, when they leave university, they either get a partner or a job they stop campaigning. And yet these issues are still important to us. So still in our heart, we still want gay rights. We still believe a woman has a right to her body, that we believe in equality and secularism. These, these values are still part of us, and yet most people leave. So um, I just wanted to talk about, well, like plead you all to stay involved in humanism. Don't, don't leave don't just come to talks like this and 
like watch TED Talks and go, yes, that's a really important issue, and do nothing. Like, everything, everything you do, like, every issue needs people to campaign, whether it's just writing to your politicians or posting things on Facebook, just keep at it. Form groups, join groups, try and, try and change things as much as you can because, remember, the religious lobby is so strong in every country. And being involved in IHEO has really shown me this, that in every country there's the same issues with the religious lobby. Take it, in every country, women don't have the, right, the rights to their body. There's people trying to stop abortion rights and people campaigning saying that there's issues with gay people or I'm trying to think of some, so many examples in Ghana. We were just talking that there's seven camps of just there for people being accused of being witches which is ridiculous. Um, and children in schools from the age of about four are often indoctrinated, um, forced to pray. Like me, for instance, I had to pray. Well, I was, had to sit through prayers twice a day for my whole childhood. And that is, which people are always so shocked about that in the UK, but that's the same for most children and, and most children in Europe. And it's something that we must be campaigning about. So that's all I have to say. Um, keep doing good, keep campaigning, don't stop the fight. But it's, it's ooh, hey. <laughs> Hello, hello. All right. Um, so, but basically, um, what I'm getting at is that my movement isn't necessarily planned. It's, uh, it's very, uh, I want to say, freestyled, um, just like what I'm doing right now. Um, but uh, I see a lot today that um, there's, there's a, a disconnect between a lot of people. There are amazing groups like this. Um, that exists, uh, I'm going to say, everywhere in the world. Um, but not always are, are these people um, communicating to everybody um, that they have an opportunity to speak to. And I think a lot of that is because uh, we, we um, as a society, tend to stick to um, certain ideas and certain ways of 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 being that um, that feel most comfortable with who we are, but may not be necessarily what is best for the the present situation. Um, and so, what what I what I've found because my my um, experience as as a human on this planet so far is I've shut myself off, I've been very quiet, not wanting to communicate, not wanting to talk to people just because of shyness. Um, and I was born into a family that was very expressive and communica communicative. Um, so there was always a pressure, more or less, that I, that I felt within myself to, to be able to, to speak and like, be able to connect um, deeply with, with people that, that are just around in the world. Um, and that's like a very hard task, but 
there, what I realized over time is that there's no reason to uh, restrict myself because, because, of those, because of those thoughts that I have in my head. Um, over time, I began to, to, to speak more. In kindergarten, I didn't say um, anything for the first three months of my education. Um, literally completely silent. But now, um, as much as I can, um, and as much as I'm thinking about it, I, I will speak to uh, everybody where, wherever I am. If I'm biking down the street, I'll find a way to say um, peace and love. Or I'll say peace and love no matter what. I'll just like say it to people. Just to sort of um, be starting the, the bridging of the gap between us as individuals. Because uh, there's, there's always that, that um, weird moment where who you are and who that person is may or may not connect um, and there's like a fear or worry that I shouldn't be communicating or I shouldn't be talking to this person. Um, and uh, I now understand that that's completely unnecessary and I'm also finding that to be a, a um, ma- major reason why we as a, a global world or global community, I'm sorry, find it very hard to come together and uh, accomplished tasks just because that initial moment of like of, of breaking through to the other person um, restricts us so basically what my point is is to that is to in this in this restrictive um, society already because there are many class systems and, and social structures that exist to actively make us want to not uh, communicate with people that are outside of our community um, is, to, is to don't be afraid excuse me if I'm getting a little preachy um, don't be afraid to freestyle in every moment um, because there is no such thing as um, a mistake, one, and there's also no such thing as somebody who is against you or somebody who um, isn't combati- compatible with you. Um, my, my understanding of love is that you're willing to do whatever it is that you um, think is necessary to do. No, scratch that. My understanding of love is you are willing to do whatever whatever for anybody, anything, um, just for the purpose of doing it and not expecting anything in in return. Um, So, yeah, I've been pushing myself and I also want to plant the seed of you guys as well. I'm not sure exactly what your your, um, daily habits are with communicating with strangers. Um, But... We want to say that there, there, there is no um, reason at in, in any situation to um, hold yourself back or hold yourself against um, somebody uh, just because of how you think that you may feel. Um, because the idea of love automatically pushes past that, and there's, there's no, there's no uh, reason to not be um, fully expressive of who you are. Thank you very much. My name is Greens Like the Vegetable. 
Um, I love making kale salad. I made one last night. And yeah, that's what I heard. Um, but yeah, and I'm from, originally from this area. Hello, everybody. My name is Will, and I am from the Philadelphia Society. Um, it's been a great weekend here with these lovely people, and we've talked a lot about uh, ethics and action, and I want to talk a little bit about some groups that you might be familiar with. Has anyone run into the PERG, Maryland PERG? Yeah, they probably come to your door, Environment Maryland. I am one of those wonderful people that go around door to door, knock, knock, knock. Hi, my name's Will. I'm with Penn Environment. Wonderful stuff. Um, Unfortunately, the model, uh, I think, has some serious problems. So, for example, uh, the door-to-door canvassing doesn't bring in any money. It about breaks even, ultimately. Uh, The money that we raise at the door goes towards paying our salaries, mostly. Um, And it's, it's, you know, we, we say that it's about outreach and about informing people But as you know, having talked to these people, every single one of our interactions has an agenda. And that agenda is to get your money. Um, And uh, it's a problem because, you know, I come into work every every day, um, and there are usually five new people that are there and want to start doing the work and uh, want to make a difference in one way or another. And the next day, maybe two are back. By the end of the week... Probably none. I would say 90% of the people that walk through that office door aren't there a week later because it's just it's too hard. You know, um, we have fundraising quotas. Have to raise $120 a day or else you're out. And that's just the reality of, of the job because we are paid. And if we don't fundraise, then we're losing the organization money. Um, and so this leads to a scenario, an atmosphere, where it becomes all about the money and not really so much about informing the public as it would be nice for it to be, but we're a nonprofit, and the only way that we're able to do anything is if we fundraise. So I come in in the morning, and we, have, we, we go around a big circle, and we announce, okay, these are our fundraising goals for the year. This is how much we fundraised so far. This is how much we fundraised last night. All right, these are the people that raised $200. Let's put a little animal on the board for them. Um, very exciting. I love it. Uh, don't get me wrong. The job is fantastic because I'm very good at it, and I really enjoy talking to people and feeling successful at something. But ultimately, it's hollow. It leaves a hollow feeling. Uh, Doug and I were talking yesterday about um, about uh, the industrial or the nonprofit industrial complex, and ultimately how we feel being a part of it, and the words we came up with: soul crushing. Because it is. Because you know, I if you come into it expecting to feel as though you're making a difference, feel as though you're doing something good, uh, <laughs> it's it's going to be tough. You know, I came into it, luckily, thinking, all right, this is an acting gig. I was an actor in college, and I, you know, I came in thinking, all right, I'm going to go to the door, and I'm going to be this person so that I can fulfill my agenda. And that's kind of the way you have to think about it, or else you're going to be very disappointed, because I'm sure uh, having many of you having seen many cancers in your life, you're not always excited to see them, are you? Don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. <laughs> I know you're not always excited to see them, because... They want something from you. And it's not, you know, we have 
a script that I'm supposed to say at every door. I'm supposed to go up and I'm not going to do the script. I'll spare you from that. But, but ultimately, uh, the script is not designed to inform the public. We strip it of all real meaning behind it and make it this nice little script about rivers and streams and how we're trying to save them. And just trust us, we're going to do it. Um, and it, it makes the interaction really void of substance in very serious ways. And that is, that's tough, you know, because I, I would love to be able to go to people and say, all right, this is, and I do, I, I don't say the script. I, you know, the script is boring to me. I want to actually say what's going on. But ultimately, it's a self-perpetuating machine. Um, and not to say that these groups don't do good work and that there isn't value in being able to go to politicians and say, this may, we've talked to this many of constituents at their door, this many of them have signed the petition, and this many of them cared enough to give money. That does have some power, and it definitely is something that uh, has its place in the environmental activist movement. But the model in general, I, I don't know. You know, I've done it for a couple of years now, and I've seen the ins and outs of the organization, and I don't know. It's tough when, when you see that 90% of the people that come in, some of them just want a job. A lot of them just want a job because we don't background check, we don't drug test, and we hire everybody. So a lot of them aren't really looking to be activists, but a lot of people come in and they want to do something positive in the world. And a week later we say, sorry, you're not good enough. You're not good enough to be part of this movement. And I think that is that is hurting the movement, obviously. Um, and I don't know what the solution is. You know, Doug talked about uh, his job has funding from the government, and that would be great. We don't get any government funding, really. Like, we get a little bit of grant money, and the rest is uh, just small or large donations. You know, the, when it comes down to it, the point of my job isn't really to... Uh, inform people. It's to identify new members that we can slowly uh, uh, create large donors from. So I, I feel kind of bad because I work for these organizations and I feel like now you, you are going to see the inside of the machine and be less likely to support them. They do some good work, but I'll, I'll leave you with this. Uh, I was raising money and will again for this organization, Penperg. Penperg does not employ a single person. It's a shadow organization. It doesn't exist. I mean, the money goes to USPERG because it's really what these organizations are is national lobbying organizations. Um, but it's definitely interesting to go to a door and say, hi, I'm with Penperg, and know that there is no Penperg. <laughs> That's kind of a scary thing in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so there, you know, we're talking about um, ethics and action and whether or not uh, what we're doing does actual good and it's hard to feel that way when you're a part of it and I, I don't know how to change that. Um, I think I'm going to look for other opportunities to uh, you know, put my efforts into but you know, it's, it's, I don't get um, spiritual satisfaction out of it like I do with FESS. Um, and that's why I love coming to this conference, love hanging out with these people, because it's ultimately uh, 
the ideas uh, that we come together and share and the experiences that we have that are nourishing to me and that are nourishing to us as a group. Um, and that's where I think we have to start, is by bringing people together, like we do here, and saying, all right, these are the things that we care about. How can we take action? And that's how we're going to start a movement. And I hope that all of you find that somewhere. Thank you very much.